So because this is a Buddhist community, we talk a lot about suffering. (laughs) It's a hell of a way to start a talk, I know. But um, the reason we do is because it is the soil that nourishes uh, and uh, brings to light the way uh, that relieves us from our suffering. The freedom from suffering and the suffering itself is actually, they can't be separated. And so we talk a lot about suffering because it, it is so often our starting point. And we talk about suffering in a lot of different ways. In, in the Pali language, which is the, the language that the teachings of the Buddha were recorded in, uh, they, the translation or the word used for suffering is dukkha. And when that is uh, more directly translated into English, sometimes it's suffering, sometimes it's unsatisfactoriness, just not quite being uh, okay with what is present, what's happening in any given moment. Uh, Sometimes it's translated as stress. It's the stress of life. It's dukkha. I really like the translation of friction, that there's this um, almost uh, uh, somatic experience that happens with uh, the experience of dukkha, that it's this this friction with life um, coming up against what is actually happening. Um, Now, another way to express this friction could also be contraction. And when I think about uh, the heart qualities that we are cultivating here in our practice to not only aid us in our journey towards more freedom in our mind and heart, but it's also... um, to give us a glimpse or a taste of what it is to be free. That when we are free, when we get those moments where, ah, that friction, that contraction isn't actually there, it is this open, uh, released, relaxed state of being that we feel in the mind but we could also say we, we feel it fully in our body, in our heart, in the way that we feel uh, emotionally. It's very different than that contracted uh, state that we call dukkha. And so this practice is about identifying, knowing when we're in that place of contraction when we are um, holding ourselves uh, in some way against what is being experienced, when we can't quite allow ourselves to be with what's here. You know, in our mind, it might look like um, a lot of aversion 
or it could look like a lot of wanting, a lot of wanting for something that's not here, or a wanting for something that is here to remain forever. This kind of, this grasping, uh, the clinging that happens in the mind. In Buddhism, uh, we talk about the heart-mind a lot. We refer to uh, uh, citta, the heart-mind, that there's um, really no separation. Um, The heart-mind, it's one word. (laughs) Not heart and mind, it's heart-mind, which brings us into this relationship with the mind, not just up here in the headspace, but something that is actually more fully embodied and experienced throughout, which is perhaps more accurate when we think about our neurological system, our intelligence. It's not just in the brain. It's it's in our body. It's in our whole being. And so this this chitta or this heart, um, I spent some time in in Thailand practicing, and when... uh, the monks and nuns would talk about the mind. They would put their hand here on their heart. This was the mind. The mind isn't um, separate. So when we're talking about the heart and and a release in the heart, a freedom in the heart, um, you can bring the mind um, with that, that it's uh, connected. I think in the West we don't always understand this um, concept. Uh, we think mind, we think brain and headspace. So for this talk, you're going to have to reorient. <laughs> We're talking about the heart, mind. We're talking about freedom in the heart. And that that is what this practice is asking us to do, is to notice when the heart is not free, when the heart is in contraction. I was reading uh, an article the other day by Pema Khandro Rinpoche, who's a a teacher here in Berkeley in uh, the Mahayana tradition. She wrote a beautiful article, uh, I think it was in Lion's Roar, was where I got it. And she's talking about the heart-mind and talking about it in relation to... um, uh, being a, a bodhisattva, which is this, is an ideal idea of um, uh, the possibility of being so awake in this lifetime that you could have the choice of never returning karmically back into uh, to um, a human form. Uh, but actually choosing to stay and keep returning because um, you're filled with so much hope and love for humankind and so much compassion that you want to keep coming back to help others wake up and meet their fullest potential, uh, which is a, it's such a beautiful um, idea. And so she's talking about this um, as a practice that we can we can practice this awakening of the heart and this uh, um, expansion of the heart uh, to be a bodhisattva um, or to to um, 
you know, imagine what it would be like to be a bodhisattva, to hold all beings everywhere with this wide open heart, not leaving anybody out, not coming into contraction with certain people, um, but instead being able to, to hold all the suffering and all the humanness, uh, including our own, with, with deep compassion. So I'll read a little bit about what she she says because it really struck me and and um, has been on my mind uh, since reading it. Um, she begins by talking about uh, um, a Buddhist sage who once asked, "How can we find the inexhaustible bodhisattva love? How can we find this love that's inexhaustible?" And the sage replies, saying, we must know selflessness and emptiness. When love is exhausted, we have to look to our fundamental openness and abandon the struggle of ego. Opening further makes tremendous resources available spontaneously. This is why they say that the bodhisattva's love is like moonlight shining on a hundred bowls of water. Every bowl is filled with moonlight, but not because the moon is making it happen through aggressive effort. There is abundant light because the moon is relaxed as it is, giving itself over to its innate luminosity. So there's a few things that strike me in this. First, this phrase, of a love that is exhausted. And so when I think about the contracted heart, and I think about it, especially in relationship with other people, and how um, easily it is to fall into this state of exhausted love. Have you ever experienced that, where you you care so much about someone? Let's say um, uh, it's a loved one. And you care about them, and you care about the relationship, and you're giving it everything you've got, and you're you're you know using all your Buddhist tools that <laughs> you can think of, and uh, you know all of the the you know psychology that you've learned over the years, and all the self help stuff, and um, you've put in so much effort into it, and it's something's not quite working. There's still hurt. Uh, There's still maybe uh, residual pain there. Or perhaps there's just a continual friction between you and this other person. They just somehow, no matter your best intentions, are able to hit that particular button whenever you see them. And it brings you into uh, intense contraction. How many of you have experienced these relationships? Yeah, I... (laughs) Two hands and two feet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Our exhausted love. Or maybe it's not um, uh, a loved one, or you could put coworkers in that category too. Uh, Maybe it's just, you know, turning on the news and caring so deeply for humankind, but hearing over and over again uh, the destruction, the hate, 
Um, and what that does to our psyche, it's exhausting, right? We get exhausted after a while. We're hearing it over and over and over, and we care. We care so much. And our hearts, uh, it's a lot to hold. And they get tired. That love, it gets tired. So I, I like this phrase. I feel like it, it touches upon something that um, is so relatable. Uh, what do we do when our love is exhausted? And in this practice, it's pointing to a capacity that is so beyond this exhausted love, this exhausted heart, that part of what this practice is doing is is saying you can expand, you can go further than this. That this idea that I'm all out of love, I'm you know for myself, for for other people, um, for this planet, for everybody on it. Um, I'm done, that this practice is challenging that idea that there is some limit, that that limit is uh, somewhere in the story of us, somewhere in the story of who we are. We've placed a limit, or someone has told us what our limit is. And so maybe this is what I love about this practice. It's just when I think uh, this is as far as I go, it pushes me just a little bit further. Um, We often talk about uh, meeting your practice right at your edge, right at your comfort edge. And, And then you go a little bit further and a little further. And the heart... uh, it expands. Its capacity is beyond what our sense of self can imagine. That what limits us is um, something that's, you know, an illusion of who we are. But it's hard to tap into that. It's hard to keep that in our consciousness on a regular basis. Um, it's it's. It's real also to feel exhausted uh, by all of this. And so how do we hold both the full potential of the human heart, of, the, of this citta, this heart-mind, and also the reality of how we feel in a particular moment? And this is the Dharma. So the Dharma isn't saying... You know, get over it. (laughs) Buck up. You know. It's not saying ignore that experience and push through to what you think your real potential could be or what, what, you know, the teachings tell you. Instead, what it's pointing to is that limitation itself, that contraction itself, it's saying your heart is, has so much more capacity and we can touch into that just by turning our attention towards that contracted state, 
that act of turning towards the contraction, towards the dukkha, the friction in itself, is an act of uh, immense love. To care that much, to stay with and turn towards the places that are frightening or uncomfortable, that are tender, uh, are scary. It takes a lot of courage. And in that courage, there's so much love. There's so much heart. There's freedom just in that uh, act of intentionally turning towards those places. So I want to come back to that turning towards in just a moment. But I want to bring in now uh, this other piece um, that really struck me about... um, the quote that I read you at the very end where it says, there's an abundant light because the moon is relaxing as it is, giving itself over to its innate luminosity. So the heart, when it's not contracted, this heart-mind, when it's not contracted, it is, it's relaxed, it's authentic. Um, It's not trying to be anything. It's not trying to be awakened. It's relaxed into its true nature. And then what is flowing from that is luminous. It doesn't have to um, fight to create that light. It just is. And so think about, just right now, think of a time where you were in the presence of another person Someone, uh, it could be a loved one, it could be someone you just met, it could be just someone you sat quietly next to on the bus. But think of a time when you were with another person and the heart was just open. You were relaxed. You could feel uh, that connection. It came easily. There wasn't a bunch of guarding that, that came up. Um, you were really yourself. And some of you, I bet, are thinking, oh, I can't think of a single moment. And that's, that's okay, too. That's information, too. And then for some of you, maybe you're thinking of time after time after time. This relaxed, open heart, that, that feeling of just being with another person in this way, uh, is very similar to the experience of equanimity, which is one of the um, heart qualities that is cultivated through this practice, this feeling of equanimity, this experience of equanimity. Equanimity is uh, very expansive. It's very even. It's filled with wisdom, but it's warm, it's connected, um, it's at ease with itself, this equanimity. This equanimity within it uh, is the feeling of the capacity of the heart. 
when we are in those states where uh, we're at ease with how things are, when we um, can easily feel the flow of the heart open into caring of compassion for someone or just um, in an easeful friendliness with somebody, Um, or maybe it's just the heart easily opening uh, effortlessly because we see their happiness. And so we're, we're experiencing their joy, the sympathetic joy with them. What's holding all of that is this relaxed, open, equanimous heart that uh, when we can tap into that quality, uh, this equanimity quality, there too we can begin to see the real true capacity of the heart, just how expansive it really is, that the boundaries of it are um, non-existent. And so there's all these moments within um, our, our daily life, uh, within the, the span of our time practicing, that we can um, experience or recall the expansiveness of the heart, the fuller capacity of the heart, and be clued in to just what that really feels like. It's not something we have to wait until we're totally uh, awakened or totally free uh, to understand. This is something that we can understand right now. And so what happens to our love when we go into that contraction? This is something we have to know. It's something we have to really understand in order to come back into that more relaxed, equanimous, wise, full, expansive state of being with whoever is in front of us. We're asked to look closely and deeply, to question, to keep questioning, what is this? And so it might show up as just a feeling of contraction. Something's just a little off. I'm not quite myself. So in relationship to another person, just seeing how you are um, while you're interacting with somebody. You know, if it's somebody you know well, then following and noticing the thoughts that are coming through or the emotions that come up um, Are you meeting that person fully in that moment with who they are and who you are? Do you notice there's kind of this residual um, thought process or emotion that arises that's connected with past experiences with that person? Do you have an idea of of that person from um, the past that you're bringing into the present that... um, brings in a lot of guarding or resentment. Um, Sometimes I think of it as taking uh, notice of what's actually just habit and what is uh, truly a danger to the heart. Sometimes we have people in our lives that are truly um, 
hateful and, and dangerous to us. And so the heart contracting and um, putting up boundaries or um, struggling to stay open, you know, when we are really in a place of danger is very understandable. Um, and we can come back to that in a moment. But there's another category here of just a habit in the heart to contract. You know, it's not really in danger. There's no danger there. But maybe there's, oh, this person who doesn't always agree with what I think. Or it's this person who makes me feel like I'm, you know, 10 years old and just a child. Or it's this person who I just don't really have time for. You know, they're just kind of sucking my time right now and I have more important things to do. Or it's this person that I just want their approval so intensely uh, that I can't quite be myself. I'm, I'm, I'm so guarded because I don't want them to really see who I really am, but I want them to accept what I, I think they want me to be. There's so many ways in which um, we habitually respond uh, to, to each other. And if we're not conscious to it, um, it just uh, leads to more and more suffering. We can ignore it for a while, but it, we start to see the pattern of unhappiness. We start to see the feeling of separation, that we don't feel connected to each other. And we have a hard time tracking, well, what is that all about? It can be easy in those moments to make it about everybody else. But this practice is asking you to, to look back at yourself. Look at your own contraction. What's going on here? Sometimes uh, it's not even the person in front of you that you're contracting towards. They remind you of somebody or, you know, we all have a type of person that we struggle with, you know, like that personality type that we just kind of come up against. And when we recognize it in another person, whether we know them well or not, our whole system goes into, you know, defense mode of, oh, I know you because you remind me of all those other people with the same personality. I know you so well. And this is how I'm going to respond to you. It's just kind of fascinating what our mind does. And then take it further, looking at our, you know, our biases and our prejudice, that deep-seated bigotry, racism. Maybe it's it's inherited. Maybe we don't even know that it's part of the mix when we're interacting with someone. But we might just feel this little eh, contraction, a guarding there. Might not even be a full thought there, but there's something in us that can't fully relax. It's those little seeds that uh, can be traced back to ongoing cycles of, of suffering. 
of loneliness, of fear. It's what we want so desperately to be done with. We want freedom from these states. But the way to it is to look closely at what's really happening here, to look closely at that contraction, to get to know it. When we do that, it doesn't just poof, go away. In fact, oftentimes we end up, as we start to uncover um, our unconsciousness and uncover how our mind and our heart are really behaving, all of these habits, uh, sometimes it hurts more. We find ourselves in a lot of sadness around it. We start to see a little bit more about who we are. And it's not always easy to see. You know, for example, in relationship with a loved one, maybe you have a story that it's all their fault and you start to look closely and realize that, you know, you've had something to do with it too and having to face that. Or that personality type that you just, you know, have such a hard time with and start to look closely and realize it's because you have a lot of the same traits and maybe there are parts of you that you haven't fully owned yet. Or looking at um, your prejudices. Bigoted, uh, racist, uh, all the isms that uh, are festering in there that maybe haven't been looked at fully. And then you start to look at it. Oh, that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm a good person, right? And we can get into a whole uh, defense mechanism around that to defend who we think we really are. And so when we look closely at these places, it's painful. It can be incredibly painful to see um, a little bit more clearly who we are. And this is normal, that there's no, nothing wrong with that, that this is part of the process that we have to go through. Uh, that the way to more freedom sometimes means the way through more dukkha. Or seeing it more clearly. I can't tell you how often I felt, and I've heard others of you say, you know, sometimes I wish I could just close that door, but now I've seen it. And I can't close that door anymore. I can't go backwards. I've seen too much. And there can be that feeling in this practice. That's why it takes so much courage. But like I said, within that courage, the fact that you're looking, the fact that you're staying with it, you aren't shutting that door. It points to the immense capacity of the heart. That this is love. That this is pointing to your capacity for more freedom, that you do have this ability to untangle the heart and mind from all the things that are weighing them down, from covering them up, 
and keeping them from that relaxed, open, equanimous, compassionate fullness. And so the experience of the dukkha, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, It's very uncomfortable. And it will make the heart contract even more often. We can find ourselves in that state of even more contraction. And we think, wait a minute, I'm trying to release from the contraction, but the more and more I do this, I'm just contracting more. This is totally normal. It's part of the process. Try to eliminate this idea of it should be happening this way, it shouldn't be happening this way. Or even this idea of this is good, this is bad. It's all just part of a process. The dukkha is part of the way towards the elimination of the dukkha. It's part of the freedom. Again, we can't separate the two. So I'm just, I I guess I'm just pausing right now, wondering um, what you think about all of this, what your experience is when you uh, hear talks like this, uh, when you think about uh, your own relationship with uh, that contracted heart. Where is it? the hardest for you? Where does it just seem impossible that at some point you might be able to include uh, those who are difficult? Um, into this more relaxed uh, state. So maybe... Um, Maybe just having you talk with each other first and then we can open it up to the fuller group. Uh, Turning towards one or two people near you and you don't have to say anything profound necessarily, but just to share honestly what your thoughts are on this particular subject. How do you relate it to your own life and how things are going right now uh, in your life. Is there a particular relationship that you're struggling with at this time of year? Um, Is there a particular part of yourself that you're struggling with that uh, you're finding yourself in full contraction around you? Are you... um, not able to identify the places that you contract? Is this a new concept and maybe something you've never explored before and are finding this um, really new to you? So whatever it is, just taking a moment to be able to voice to the person next to you or a small group here. Um, And then when you're not speaking, to really listen, to be able to listen to whoever's in your group or whoever your partner partnered with and let them talk. You don't have to um, guide them in any particular way or fix their problems. Uh, Your job is to listen with that open heart as best you can. So go ahead and turn towards 
one or two people near you. And you can introduce yourself. Of course, if you're feeling like, oh, I don't really want to do group exercise, you're always welcome to um, just sit quietly and reflect by yourself. But this is a nice way to just meet people near you. And each person just taking a couple of minutes each to share your thoughts. Let's take just one more minute. So let's see, one of the groups needed more time. How many of you are needing a little more time? Okay. So if there's someone in your group who hasn't shared, uh, make sure that they get that opportunity now, and we'll take another minute.
Okay, you can start to finish what you're saying. And then make sure to thank your partner or your group for sharing and for listening. And then you can turn back towards the front. (laughs) I know some of you had more to say and you didn't get to say it. That's okay. Okay. So uh, let's let's hear from a few of you. And um, we can run the mic. (laughs) <laughs> Here you go. You're going to run the mic. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So, what came up? Let's bring it to the larger group, if you don't mind. I'll hear from a few. Yeah. So we were talking about turning towards the contraction mm-hmm. um, rather than struggling against it. And um, two things came up. One was like surrendering to it and um, uh, not looking away, but really looking, turning towards it compassionately. And another was really connecting with how, with connecting with how we feel, like allowing ourselves to feel truly what the contraction feels like rather than wishing it that it's not there or denying that it's there um and one of the things that came up was connecting with anger um and i think uh maybe as women and maybe in the society like there's not many great outlets for expressing or feeling anger and that's not really encouraged so just really connecting with you know if that contraction feels like anger to to recognize it acknowledge it and um you know, give it its due. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's so important. I, it's one of the great things about this practice is it doesn't exclude anything. You don't have to exclude anger. You can fully be in your anger, know it completely, let it fill your whole body. Notice where you're afraid of it, where you might be cutting it off. Uh, limiting it in some way. Um, really let it rage if that's what's needing to happen. And, <laughs> you know, that's... Um, there's something... Uh, there's, you know, different... Uh, depending on how we're, we were raised and, and, and the ways that we were taught to relate to things like or experiences like anger... And uh, there's a whole list of things that, you know, there's, that we deny ourselves or try to hide or feel like are not holy in some way. And, um, you know, this, uh, this dukkha, this, this um, unsatisfactoriness of whatever it is, it's, it's not the anger. It's that relationship with the anger that is saying 
it should be something else. I should be a different way with this or somehow this is not okay. That's the rub right there. But we have maybe other conditionings um, to tell us otherwise. And so it can be hard to, to meet those conditionings and this practice at the same time. And just in that, there, there's the edge. That can be an edge right there. Um, but, oh, it's so freeing to be able to fully be in something like anger and not feel like we have to somehow patch it up or make it other. Um, yeah. It's not, um, it doesn't hinder the heart from from love when we can hold it in that container of of love, you know, that that anger can be there and we can be loving ourself experiencing the anger at the same time. That there doesn't have to be uh, one or the other. But it takes it takes practice and it takes some wisdom to be able to hold it like that. But it's really possible. So I love that you brought that in. Yeah, thank you. Mm. Um, there was a couple of us in the group that we were a group of three, a couple um, who were expressing one of the most difficult relationships or type of relationship, I guess, is with people that seem attached to views. I mean, Ditya provided the word views for me in this. Um, I mean, the earliest Buddhist teachings, I think, the Buddha was was kind of like <laughs> summarized as saying, don't be attached to views, uh-huh. specifically. Um, particularly of the Brahmanistic views, I guess. Um, maybe of the <laughs> uh, other views in the, in the early period. Um, but one of the things that I find at least frustrating is to know how to deal with people that are seem to be attached to a view that it seems like, you know, they're so, I, mean, I don't care if they come to my view particularly, but if they have some openness, it seems like they could be, they could suffer so much less. Mm. Or uh, they could be so much more flexible, or they could be, you know, and, and the challenge is then how to work with that person, you know, to care about them or to care about the relationship. Um, when, you know, it's kind of confronting, even questioning, just stirs things up. I mean, kind of in the polarized political climate now in particular. Mm -hmm. But it happens in all kinds of contexts also. I mean, in, you know, Buddhist sects or Christian sects or Mm -hmm. um, people just have views so much. Views are so comfortable, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, and and allow us to (laughs) maintain this... uh, this Atman, this, you know, this core unchanging sense of self. And the Buddha says there yeah. is no, it's all just flux. It's all just patterns of energy. Yeah. I mean, that's 21st century paraphrase of, of the Buddha, it's I guess, patterns good. of energy. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but so it's just an interesting challenge of how to, I mean, that we kind of just were, came into sharp focus, I guess, is how to 
work with views without being attached to our own view that this person is, um, you know, I mean, I'm clearly right in my view that everybody should be more open. Yeah. But. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, but that's that's important. I'm laughing, but it's, but that's a big piece of it is noticing where is our own view, you know, being part of that rub, you know. Is it, um, I mean, it's, there is a complexity here in the sense that we're not, we're not practicing to open and become doormats to, you know, abuse or um, to hatred and, and all of these, these things. Um, so the idea isn't just, you know, become so equanimous with whatever someone is saying or doing, their actions and their words, that somehow we don't have a response. But... Um, You know what you're what you're pointing to uh, you know we can when it is just oh I don't agree with this person and I see how their views is creating uh, more suffering we have a choice in that moment we can focus towards the suffering of and really uh, turning towards the fact that, oh, this is somebody's suffering. They're suffering. Um, maybe we know why they're suffering. We have a good idea of, oh, it's because of these views. Maybe there's other things underlying that, you know, parts of themselves that they're not fully sharing that are just steeped in a lot of doubt or maybe self-hatred or, you know, we, we have no idea. We don't have a full window into the fullness of that person, we're getting this snapshot of who they are through a particular view that they're sharing, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the wholeness of that person. And so how we relate to that information uh, is really important. Do we relate to it as meaning, you know, now we've simplified them and, and constructed a them, uh, that's solid and small because of that one view? Or is there some way to hold it in a larger context that here is a human being that is suffering because they've probably experienced many different things that have added up to this moment expressing this particular view that they're holding so dearly? Um, can I relate to the suffering and allow my heart to open in compassion that this is a person suffering and I know what it's like to suffer. And as I don't want myself to suffer, I don't want anyone else to suffer. And so holding, holding that with compassion. Now we can hold someone and their views with compassion and their suffering with compassion, uh, but it doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries or, um, you know, we just allow them to do whatever they wish uh, if they're acting out of 
harm and confusion. Um, that there's wisdom to this too. That we have to not throw out the wisdom piece with the compassion. That, um, you know, having healthy boundaries, sometimes uh, boundaries as far as not even being in the same room with someone. Uh, not associating with somebody. Um, sometimes that's what's necessary. Sometimes giving us the physical space uh, that is safe in order to open up the heart first is really necessary. And then there can be a process with that of uh, maybe there needs to be forgiveness practice there. Maybe there needs to be more self-compassion practice there depending on just the level of impact. Um, so it, it's a bit complex what you're, you're pointing to. It sounds like all three of you were relating to. Um, but relationships, these, this, this, there is a complexity to this. Yeah, well, it's completely complex, obviously, but the challenge is how to find the skill to, um, to rearrange this complex configuration that allows it to rebalance without sort of me being the expert that solves it or with, yeah. you know, without somebody capitulating or, uh, or somebody winning, yeah. you know, but how to, how to, um, embrace it. I mean, as a bodhisattva, I just look at that and I go, I've got way too many lives to go before all <laughs> beings are awakened. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying implies that it shouldn't be complex. <laughs> it is complex. We can simplify it by... It is complex. And the path is acknowledging the complexity of it and to keep looking. We can simplify it, but it's not simple. Um, but to simplify it is just that you just keep... We have to keep looking. We have to look, keep looking at what's there, looking at it from all the different angles, seeing what am I missing? What am I not clear here about? Um, where am I still in a habit of contraction? Um, it is complex, and it's not, um, you know, with especially I love working with this in terms of relationships in particular because right when we think, oh, I've got this down, I'm fine with this person, um, I, I, you know, have healed all these wounds. And the next thing we know, uh, we're sitting down at a family dinner and they're sitting across from us and they say that one thing and we're right back where we started because there's still something there. It's, uh, we, we're called to keep looking and relaxing into it, relaxing with the discomfort and with the dukkha. Uh, it's probably, it, it, by the look on your face, it's not a satisfying answer. <laughs> but, um, you know, that in itself is part of our cycle of suffering, is within this practice feeling like there should be, um, you know, this way that uh, means I don't have to look at all this stuff. Um, we can get stuck in uh, really searching for ways that um, take us somehow out of this, this 
complexity out of the system of humanness to, to somehow bypass um, the work that really has to be done. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that's, that's, I don't think that works. I don't think it exists. Okay. Um, wow. So it's 9.30, so we have to end. Uh, my hope is that this is sparking some curiosity in this, with this idea of the contracted and uncontracted or relaxed heart, the heart-mind. And that as you go through these holidays, whether you're doing celebrating or not, whether you are uh, with your families or not, um, that you're um, kind of taking a closer look at, at uh, how this relates to you, how you react to it, how you're holding it wisely. Um, and also not to forget to really notice when the heart is relaxed, when you're in those states of um, peace uh, in, your, in your mind, when you're feeling those states of ah in the heart, that those don't just go by and not get caught either. That just as we have to turn in towards the, the dukkha, we have to also learn how to turn and look closely at when the dukkha is not there and get to know those parts of ourselves and our capacity there just as much. That, that is just as important to become familiar with. So I hope you have uh, many opportunities uh, between now and the next time I see you um, to, to do that. And we'll now take a moment to dedicate the merit And a few of you uh, wrote on the cards, so I'll start. These are the the people who you've been thinking about. This says, for my nephew Jim, who is in the hospital with a leg infection. So for Jim, may he heal quickly. Uh, for Corey, who is in the hospital, uh, it says 17 days NICU. So maybe Corey is a little baby. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so holding Corey in our hearts. And then um, for Tara, it just says Tara uh, suicidal. Um, so Tara's having a hard time. So we're holding Tara in our hearts this evening. For Josh, who is struggling with becoming a father, it's a huge transition. So all these dear beings who are struggling in their own ways, we can relate to their struggle because we know what it is to struggle. And to all the people who were not named out loud, but you're sitting with them right now. Dedicating this evening to them. May any goodness, um, wholesomeness, wisdom, compassion. May it be not just for us, but for all beings everywhere.
May all beings be happy and find contentment in their lives. May all beings be healthy in their mind and in their body. May all beings feel safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings be free. May we all be free. Thank you, and have a happy new year if I don't see you uh, before that. Take care.